John Cashin. John Cashin, the third figure that I want to look at. Evagrius was very influential, and perhaps the greatest influence he had was on John Cashin. John Cashin's dates are 360 to 435, which makes him almost an exact contemporary of Augustine of Hippo. What's fascinating about Cashin is that he's a kind of bridge between East and West, particularly with regard to monasticism. He was born in the East, somewhere in the Balkans, perhaps Romania or present-day Bulgaria. He was born in, into a Latin-speaking family, but he also became important in the Greek Eastern Church and, of course, knew both Greek and Latin. He, too, went out into the desert to live with the desert monks and to learn from the desert monks, both the Abbas who lived in Egypt and those who lived in present-day Syria and uh, Palestine. He spent many years there interviewing some of the most famous desert leaders, the most famous Abbas, and taking down their wisdom. Then he gradually moved west with his friends, time of great upheaval in the Eastern and Western Empire, but he moved to the western part of the empire. He spent some time in Rome, but then he went to southern France, Gaul in those days, where he became a monastic founder and one of the earliest key figures in the history of Western monasticism founding monasteries around Marseille and other kinds of places, but then also writing in Latin to convey the wisdom of the Eastern monastic tradition to these new Western monks in the communities that he was founding. And he writes two very important works. The first are called the, the Conferences, Collaciones. And these are a series of 24 talks, or we could call them interviews, that he and his friends had with famous fathers of the Egyptian and Syrian desert, like Abba Isaac, or Abba Arsenius, or various others. And they would go and talk to them about monastic life, monastic prayer, monastic practices. And now he's recording all that material, writing it in a fairly substantial book, which is probably the most important book after the rule of Benedict for Western monasticism. This is the book that all the Western monks read, along with scriptures, of course, and along with the rule of Benedict, they read Cashin's conferences over and over and over again. He also writes uh, something he calls the Instituciones, the Institutes, and that's more about monastic practices. But I want to talk more about the conferences, particularly the conferences that deal explicitly with prayer. One of the things about Cashin is Cashin's writing for monks, and this is very, very obvious. So he's not explicitly writing for everybody. Part of the issue in reading Cashin is, well, you know, how far would this material that's specifically written for monastic communities be applicable to everyday Christians? I think it is applicable, but you have to make certain adjustments and certain kinds of transitions. But Cashin on prayer is of great importance. And the key conferences among these 24 conferences are Conference 1, where he sets out the nature of the monastic life in general which are interviews that he and his friends had with Abba Moses. And then conferences 9 and 10, which are interviews that he and his friends had with Abba Isaac. Now they go to Abba Isaac and they say, well, what about prayer? Tell us about prayer. What does it mean? How do you practice prayer? But let's start with a few remarks on conference 1, where he lays out the nature of the monastic life. This is a conference with Abba Moses. So they ask Abba Moses, what is the monastic life? What is it supposed to be like? And the Abba tells them the aim of our profession, our way of life, is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. 
But our point of reference, our objective is purity of heart. Purity of heart, puritas cordis in Latin, which is really Evagrian apatheia. And you might say purity of heart is still the best translation that one can have. Abba goes on to say, purity of heart without which it is impossible for anybody to reach the target. So the target of the aim, which is the kingdom of heaven, can only be reached if you practice apatheia, puritas cordis. Purity of heart is also caritas. It's perfect charity, as the same first conference goes on to say. That is, everything that is done in a monastic life is done to get purity of heart and perfect charity, perfect love for God and love of neighbor. And for the monk, contemplation, he insists, is the foremost practice of the monastic life. I quote, You will note that the Lord establishes as the prime good contemplation. That is, the gaze turned in the direction of the things of God. The other virtues are all practiced for the sake of this one. As we look at Luke 10, he's talking about here the famous Mary-Martha story, where Martha is identified with activity and Mary is identified with contemplation. He says, that story tells us the Lord locates the primary good, not in activity, however praiseworthy, however abundantly fruitful, but in the truly simple and unified contemplation of himself. So for the monk, contemplation is always the key practice, however important activity may be. And there are various forms of contemplation, direct contemplation of God, contemplation of God in nature, contemplation of God in his saints in the whole Christian community. When you transit then to conferences 9 and 10, Abba Isaac talks about prayer in a specific sense. And he talks about both the exercise of prayer in general and then the exercise of constant prayer. Constant prayer, pray ceaselessly. And for him, you pray ceaselessly by practicing what he calls a formula of piety, a formula pietatis that we might call today a mantra. And the formula of piety that Abba Isaac teaches to uh, Cashin and his contemporaries is taken from the Psalms. Psalm 69, to God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. And uh, Cashin says that the monk should seize upon that particular term and practice it constantly as a way of always praying. Let me just read you a text. The same thing happens with contemplation. You need a model and you should keep it constantly before your eyes. You learn either to turn it in a salutary way over and over in your spirit as you use it and meditate on it, as you lift yourself upward to the sublime sights. What follows now is the model to teach you, the prayer formula for which you are searching and which you should meditate on constantly. This is something which has been handed on to us by some of the oldest of the fathers. And it is something which we hand on to only a very small number of souls eager to know it. Keep the thought of God always in your mind. You must cling totally to this formula of piety. God, come to my help. Lord, make haste to rescue me. To when he goes on with a long paragraph about almost everything is in this prayer. Cry to help for God expresses humility, conveys watchfulness. It gives us a sense of our frailty gives us an assurance of being heard, confidence and help. It's a voice filled with the ardor of love and charity for God. So that particular formula of piety, that particular mantra for Cashin is fundamental to monastic prayer that he is teaching. 
And this will lead eventually, if you practice this constantly, Cashin says, it leads you to the gift of what he calls fiery prayer. Fiery prayer, ratio ignita, which ignites your soul in love. And that's contemplative prayer, which is not something you arrive at on your own. You prepare by practicing your formula of piety. But if you practice it faithfully, God will give you the gift of what he calls oratio ignita, fiery prayer, which inflames the heart and also allows you to pray the scriptures, and Cashin points particularly at the Psalms, pray the scriptures from within, not from the outside, to pray the scriptures and especially to pray the Psalms as if you're composing them, not as if you're reading a text, but as if you're writing the text. And for Cashin, that kind of prayer which you can reach by practicing your formula of piety is the highest kind of prayer. Thank you.